Romans chapter 5 and verse 1, we'll begin our reading. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access by faith into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope, and hope maketh not ashamed. Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given unto us. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commandeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. And our reading there this evening, let's have a word of prayer and ask for God's help. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee for the unshakable joy of Thy people. The fact that we have been reconciled to God. Lord, we pray that Thou wouldst use Thy Word tonight to stir up our souls to holy joy. Oh God, aren't we a people, Lord? Oh Lord, aren't we a people that lack joy, lack the joy of the Lord? Because we, Lord, we fail to meditate on the Gospel and have our hearts gripped by it. The fact that we're justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. Father, as we think about the Reformers and their understanding of assurance, Lord, please, bring great assurance to our own souls. May there be a work done in our hearts. For Jesus' sake. Amen. Amen. Well, I draw your attention to the first verse of Romans 5. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. As the flames licked around his feet, the English reformer Thomas Cranmer victoriously cried out, I see heaven open and Jesus on the right hand of God. Anne Askew was another martyr during the days of the Reformation. She was burned at the stake. This is the English Reformation. And as she died, she said, 
that she came not hither to deny her master. When John Rogers, the martyr, was asked if he wanted to recant his Protestant faith so he could be pardoned, he refused, and he washed his hands in the fire as he burned as if he didn't even feel it. If one thing marked the lives of the men and women of the Reformation, it was courage. It was an indomitable courage in the face of every kind of opposition that could be imagined. Even in the face of death, they rejoiced. And you see, joy, as the book of Nehemiah says, is our strength, the joy of the Lord. And we have to ask the question, what was it that gave Cranmer, Anne Askew, John Rogers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, as many as we want to name in the days of the Reformation, such an indomitable courage, a boldness, a fearlessness in the face of every kind of opposition. And I submit to you that it was this. It is the same thing that has always marked the people of God in times of victory. It is an unshakable joy, assurance. It's assurance. They were assured that their souls were right with God. They were certain that what they stood for was the truth of God. And because they were assured, they could look at the face of death and say, Heaven is open to me! doesn't really face a man who sees death as a door opening up to the glories of heaven. But you see, in these days, the assurance of the gospel was so precious because they had lived in times when there was no assurance. But today, the assurance of salvation, which is our unshakable joy, is not as precious because we live with it every day. It's when the people of God are gripped with the gospel. This is when they really are set aflame for evangelism. You want to set somebody on fire for evangelism? It's not by beating people over the head and telling them they need to go. It's when souls are transfixed with the glory of the gospel. They can't do anything but spread it. Want people to be able to have a greater resolve to fight temptation? Is it by continually telling them you need to do better? That's sometimes we need to exhort, stand, as Paul did, having to not to stand, to stand. But it's when the heart is gripped by the gospel that a man will stand against temptation because it entices him to the sin that cost his Savior so dearly. And so this reminds us of the Apostle Paul in Romans 8, verses 38 through 39. You hear his assurance. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I want us to consider this evening assurance of the unshakable joy of the Reformers. Assurance the unshakable joy of the Reformers. Now, as I said already, there was and is no assurance 
in Roman Catholicism. Now, we have to understand something about the Roman Catholic's understanding of salvation, if we're to understand their view of assurance. To the Roman Catholic Church, baptism is what brings someone into the life of Christ. Or you could say it is by baptism that spiritual life is imparted to an individual. This happens for an infant even. When an infant is baptized, the life of Christ is imparted to them. They are made new creatures. They are made children of the church and children of God. In the act of baptism, they are regenerated. Original sin is erased. And for someone who is not a child being baptized, all prior sin is erased by the act of baptism. We talk about baptism with the sacraments of Rome being ex opere operato, meaning what is in view is not necessarily the faith of the individual, but the action of the ceremony itself that confers blessing. So whether an infant has faith or not, baptism itself brings them into spiritual life. And it brings them into a state of grace. And this was the condition of many or all during the times of the Reformation, outside of those for whom the truth had broken light upon. And they had to stay in a state of grace. For a Roman Catholic, once you're baptized, you can lose your salvation. You can fall out of a state of grace. You have to maintain that state of grace. Positively, grace is given through the sacraments. But the way in which you can lose your grace, your gracious standing, is through sin. And I mentioned in Sunday school, there's a distinction in Roman Catholic doctrine between mortal and venial sin. Venial sin are sins that do not cause someone to fall out of a state of grace. They're sins that can be easily forgiven. They add up, yes, your years of purgatory, but they do not cause you to fall out of a state of grace. But mortal sins, which would include murder, stealing, lying, defrauding, dishonoring one's parents, mortal sins were sins so heinous in the eyes of the Catholic Church that anybody who committed it would be put out of a state of grace. And so you had to do all that you had in your power, all that you could in your power, to keep yourself from falling into a mortal sin. If you fell into a mortal sin, you would have to repent of your sin, go to the priest in confession, do penance, satisfaction, before you could be absolved of your sin. So for any Roman Catholic that was living, in the first place, Nobody believed that when they died, they were going straight to heaven. They didn't agree with Paul, for to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Nobody believed that when they died, they were going to heaven. Everybody believed that when they died, they were going to purgatory at least. And then after thousands of years perhaps, or less, 
they would, they would be purged from their sin, and then they would be able to enter heaven. But for many Roman Catholics who knew their souls and knew their hearts, they know they dishonored their parents. They had lied maybe that day. They had stolen. Who can tell the heart of man? I mean, who can tell if, if you're really clean from a mortal sin or not? And if you were to die without being aware of and repentant of and confessed and go through all of the different ceremonies necessary to clear your slate, so to speak, for your mortal sin, if you died, you would go straight to hell. That was and is the doctrine of the Roman Catholic Church. The Council of Trent, Session 6, ninth chapter states, No one can know with a certainty of faith which cannot be subjected to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. No one can know with certainty that he has obtained the grace of God. You cannot know. You cannot be sure that when you die, you will not go straight to hell. How do you know? If there is some mortal sin you've, com- you've, you've committed within the past how many decades that you have not repented of? How can you be sure? How can you be sure that you're really clean, that you're really right? How can you know? And this was the kind of terrible torture of guilt and despair and fear that was involved in Roman Catholic religion. John Fox, the author of Fox's Book of Martyrs, said, The Catholic Church left the poor consciences of men in perpetual doubt. The church said you can't know for sure. And so none of the people did. The people were in constant doubt. Can you imagine that kind of torture? To be weighed down with a load of guilt? And as I explained this morning, with the environment of death, the atmosphere of the famine and the plague, and all that was going on in the late Middle Ages, to be under the weight of this guilt and facing death every moment, utter despair was the result. But the Reformers said that you could know. Luther stated about his being a monk that he went through this same bunch of superstition. He said, I was a good monk. I kept the rule of my order so strictly that I may say that if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was me. All my brothers in the monastery who knew me will bear me out. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils, prayers, reading, and other works. You see, Luther felt the strictness of God's holy law. Which, by the way, our culture today, yes, we have more light than the Catholic Church did, but isn't it true that in their day they felt the strictness of God's law and they knew a God of wrath, yet they are blind to His mercy? And yet today we know a God of mercy and yet are blind to His wrath and the strictness of His law. We are yet in need of reformation. It's just a different direction. But Luther said, at one point I am dust and ashes and full of sin. He looked at his heart and he saw nothing but sin, nothing but wretchedness and rottenness until he found the gospel of free grace. And in the gospel... He was able to say, I know and am persuaded that I will one day be in glory. 
And this was the proclamation of the Reformers. So much so that Cardinal Bellarmine, the Jesuit Cardinal, wrote, The principal heresy of Protestants is that saints may obtain to a certain assurance of their gracious and pardoned state before God. The Reformers said you can know, and the Catholic Church said that's heresy. But I ask you this evening as well, do you know Do you know when you die that you will be with God? Now, in a group like this, I expect that many know, if not all. But there's a deeper deeper level of knowing even than that. Is your heart gripped? Do you live in the consciousness of the reality, of the fact, of your justification? Because this was the unshakable joy of the Reformers. This was what made them absolutely unstoppable. They feared not death, nor hell, nor devils. Because they had assurance. But what was the basis of their assurance? How could they say such a thing? To this, I turn you to Romans 5 and verse 1. Luther said of this verse... In the whole Bible, there is hardly another chapter which can equal this triumphant text. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says that we can know. And that was what the Reformers held on to. When we look at this text, the first thing we see is the standing the standing of the believer. Paul wrote to the Romans, therefore being justified by faith. Now what is it to be justified? In the days of the Reformers, the Bible was translated into Latin. And the Latin word for justification was justificare, coming from the Roman judicial system, and it meant this, to make someone righteous. It meant to make, not regard, to make someone who is previously sinful now a righteous person. To give them a righteous heart, a righteous nature and disposition. To give them an infused righteousness. To give them righteousness in their heart and life. Justified. So when Luther read this justified word, this word justified, He thought of the fact that he needed to be a holy man. He needed to be a man who was righteous. And he found out that he could not be a righteous man. But that is not at all what the word in the Greek means. The Greek word dikaio, used to translate justified, means to make someone righteous. Excuse me, not to make someone righteous, to regard them righteous. To declare them righteous. To count them as righteous. It is a legal term. And the amazing thing about this word in this text is it is in a certain tense that refers to something that has taken place at one point in the past. So that this justified that Paul is speaking of, that the believer has, is not something that he's waiting until the end of his life to find out about. It's something he possesses. 
he is justified. Therefore, being justified. To be justified is a legal term that has both negative and positive aspects. To be declared righteous negatively means to be forgiven of all sin. It means to be pardoned for all sin. Paul, speaking of justification in Romans 4 and verse 7, quoting from Psalm 32, said, saying, Blessed are they whose iniquities are forgiven and whose sins are covered. In Colossians 2 and verse 13, Paul said, And you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, hath he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, all of your sins. Forgiveness is that by which someone who has been offended no longer treats or regards the offender as if they had sinned. Forgiveness is a total change of status. Sin is no longer counted. You could think about it in the terms of a man coming before a judge. A man who is guilty for some offense. And he deserves justly punishment. But when he walks up to the judge, the judge says to him, I don't see anything on your record. I just don't see it anywhere. That is forgiveness. The record's clear. The psalmist says in Psalm 132, excuse me, 103 verse 12, as far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. I don't know what sins you have committed in your life. I don't know how deeply, how far you've gone. I don't know what things you've done when no one has seen and no one has known. The kind of wretched thoughts that have passed through your mind, the things you've said, the things you've desired. You know the depth of your sinful heart. And yet the Bible says that the believer is justified, having forgiven you all trespasses. All of the believer's sins are gone. You must understand, God does not treat the believer in accord with his sin. God has forgiven you. God has pardoned your sin. And this is what gripped the heart of the reformers. There's forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. God can pardon all my sin. No matter how great my sin may be, God can forgive it all. All my trespasses, gone, away, out of the mind of God. I am no longer viewed as having sinned. But then, there's a positive aspect to being justified. Not only is something removed, the guilt of sin is removed, but there is something added 
we use the word imputed, which simply means to reckon or to count. And there is something that is reckoned or counted to the believer. You see, for somebody to go to heaven, they must not only be somebody who has never sinned. They must be somebody who is righteous. You must be righteous to enter heaven. The Lord Jesus said in Mark 10, verse 17, And when he was gone forth, he's speaking to the rich young ruler, Into the way there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? What may I do? Jesus said, Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Defraud not. Honor thy father and mother. Keep the law. A man must keep the law to enter heaven. At least he must be viewed as a man who keeps the law to enter heaven. You cannot simply enter heaven because you've been forgiven. You must merit heaven. You must deserve heaven. You must be rewarded with glory. Nobody can simply walk in because they've been forgiven. And so the reformers, understanding that all the people of this, these days are buying indulgences, trying to get something of, of the merit of the saints. Luther and Calvin and Zwingli and the rest saw in texts like this that a man is made righteous in the sense that he is treated and regarded as if not only he's never sinned, but as if he had lived a righteous life. A life whereby at every turn he had perfectly, fully, entirely, and absolutely obeyed the law of God. And to be justified is to be viewed and treated as if you have never sinned and you had always obeyed. But then we need to think about not only the standing of the believer, but the means by which this believer comes to this standing. And the Apostle Paul gives us the means. Being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are really two means in this verse. By faith and our Lord Jesus Christ. But our Lord Jesus Christ is the grounds of our justification. Faith is simply the means by which we apprehend what Christ has purchased. But the grounds of our justification is the Lord Jesus Christ and in His work. And understand what the Apostle means by through our Lord Jesus Christ. We need to go back to thinking about what we had just said about the negative and positive aspects of justification. The negative aspect was what? that somebody's sins are forgiven. Well, the Bible makes very clear that God will not pass over the sins of the wicked. For He would be unjust to do such a thing. So how can God, who is just, forgive sin and yet remain holy and yet uphold His just standards? Well, it is through what Paul said in Romans 3, verses 25-26, through 26, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation, a wrath-bearer, 
a sacrifice through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God to declare, I say at this time, His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of Him which believeth in Jesus. How can God be just and the justifier of Him that believeth in Jesus? It is because He sent His only Son. And that's why Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, For He hath made Him to be sin for us. He who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. The only reason why God can pardon us for all of our sin, can treat us, and regard us as if we have never sinned in all of our lives is because all of our sin fell on Jesus. That is the only reason why. There is a divine transaction in that our sin was transferred to Jesus and Jesus' righteous record was transferred to us. So that our sin was imputed to Jesus Christ. And His righteousness was imputed to His church. It goes all the way back to Adam. The first Adam sinned. His sin was counted or imputed on all of his seed. And Christ's obedience, His righteousness is counted, imputed to all of His children. There's a great transaction so that Luther would say, I have no righteousness but Christ. Christ has no sin but mine. I have no righteousness but Christ. As absolutely unable I am to do anything righteous, so absolutely unable Christ is to do anything sinful. And yet I am treated as if I have never sinned and lived a perfect life. And Jesus is treated as if He had been the most vile sinner that has ever been. In fact, Luther would say, and all the prophets saw this, that Christ was to become the greatest thief, murderer, adulterer, robber, desecrator, blasphemer there has ever been anywhere in the world. Not that He was made in the sense of becoming in him internally, spiritually, sin. But he became guilty and was treated as if he had done everything that all his people had ever accomplished. Christ, as the head of his body, took the guilt and condemnation of his body. Christ, as the second Adam, took the guilt and condemnation of his people. Christ, as our representative in the covenant, He bore the curse and the wrath of a broken covenant. And on the opposite side, as our head, we receive the righteous merit of Jesus. As the seed of the second Adam, just like the first Adam sinned and it was counted to all mankind, the second Adam obeyed God perfectly. And it is counted to all of His people. And Christ, our representative, 
has obeyed every demand of God's covenant, perfectly keeping the law of God to every jot and tittle as He came to earth, placing Himself, as Galatians 4 says, under the law of God so that He would obey the law of God and then be merited life, or excuse me, be given life because He merited it. Christ obeyed and then was rewarded with glory as a man. And so all of us who are in union with Him receive the same thing. And the Reformers saw this in Scripture. First, they saw clearly in this text of Scripture, Jesus Christ has borne all our wrath when He died. He took our sin upon Him. 1 Peter 3.18 For Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. 1 Peter 2.24 Who His own self bare our sins in His own body on the tree. Isaiah 53, verses 4 through 6. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Why, Isaiah, was He stricken? Why was He smitten of God? Why was He afflicted? He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And with His stripes... We are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord hath laid, or as the Hebrew says, hath made to meet on the head of this lamb the iniquity of us all. And as the Apostle Paul said right before he spoke in Romans 5 verse 1 and Romans 4 verse 25, who was delivered for our offenses... Why did Jesus die? For our sin. And as we sang, what thou, my Lord, hast suffered was all for sinner's gain. Mine, mine was the transgression, but thine the deadly pain. Jesus bore all of the curse and condemnation of sin. And when the reformers saw that, they began to understand Payment. God cannot twice demand. First at my bleeding surety's hand, and then again at mine. And so let hell, let hell say to me, All your sins demand you go here, but Jesus has borne my hell. Let all of the superstitions say to me, Your sins demand judgment, but Jesus has been my judgment. Let all of Rome and all the priests say to me, you cannot be confident, you cannot be sure, you cannot be certain that you will not have to pay for your sin. But my Jesus has paid. And when He shed His blood, He absolutely paid for my sin. And nothing needs to be added to that payment. He has fully, finally, and absolutely paid the penalty of the sins of His people. And you could see the darkness dispelled from the minds and hearts of the Reformers to know Jesus has borne all my death, all my despair, all my grief, all my hell, all of the wrath of God exhausted in Jesus. So there's none for me. That was what gripped their souls. 
And then the inverse truth, that they were now declared to be righteous before the living and holy God. As 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21 says, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Well, Luther would have asked, how is it that a man is made the righteousness of God in Him? Well, we must go back to asking, how was it that Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin for us? Was Christ made sin for us in the sense that He became immoral? By no means. He was made sin in the sense that guilt was imputed to Christ. Well, then how was a man made righteous? Is he made righteous in the fact that his heart is made perfectly moral? By no means. He is made righteous in the sense that the righteousness of Christ is imputed to him. That's the only way this text can be understood. And it's not only said here. The prophet Jeremiah called the Lord, the Lord our righteousness. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 30, But of Him are ye in Christ Jesus, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. The Apostle Paul says, Because you are in Christ, in union with Him, and He has become liable for your guilt, you now are counted with His righteousness. Brothers and sisters, what righteousness is this? That God views you as having, as having worked out in the sense of your union. What kind of righteousness in this? is this? Well, first it's an alien righteousness. It's not your own. This is not your righteousness in view. God is not looking at your righteousness. He's not considering your righteous deeds. He's not considering all the good you've done in the sense of your justification. It's not in His mind. It is in His focus. Is the righteous deeds of His Son. And He will treat you on the basis, not of your own righteous deeds, but on the righteous deeds of His Son. That's how He treats the people of God. An alien righteousness, not a righteousness that is ours but a righteousness that is the Son of God's. But it is also a perfect righteousness. There is not a flaw. There is not one thing missing. If you think of the fact that we are robed with a garment of righteousness, there is not one thread. There is not one corner that is not woven. Every square inch of that garment is absolutely full of the righteousness of Christ. It's perfect it's blameless. It's spotless. It's without any reproach. You cannot you can say anything about it. It is perfect. And then, it's infinite. This righteousness that Christ has is an infinite righteousness. And if you think of the fact that merit is equivalent to righteousness, the merit of Christ is infinite. And the merit, therefore, with which God treats us, is infinite, or on the basis of which God treats us, is infinite. Luther said, this is an infinite righteousness, and one that swallows up all sins in a moment, for it is impossible that sin should exist in Christ. On the contrary, he who trusts in Christ exists in Christ. He is one with Christ, having the same righteousness as He. This was what gripped their souls. Not only is there no condemnation, no wrath, all my sins forgiven in the eyes of God. 
But God treats me and regards me as if I had lived a perfect, sinless, infinitely righteous life with merit that is never-ending. And thus in glory, we receive the merits of Christ in a way that you have to understand what I mean. The believer deserves heaven. Now please understand what I mean. He does not deserve heaven because of anything he has done. But by virtue of his union with Christ, in the eyes of God, he deserves heaven. Because Christ's righteousness is counted to him. Our record before God tonight, your record believer, is perfectly righteous. There is not a frown in the face of God towards you. There is only grace. There is only favor. There is only love. There is not a frown. Not one. Not one. That means everything that happens in your life, you are floating in an ocean of grace. Not one thing can happen to you that is not permitted by the grace of God. You're His treasure. You're the apple of His eye. You're His child. He'll take you home to glory. But then what is the other means? By faith. How does the child of God, or how does a sinner, I should say, receive this justification? Paul says, therefore being justified by faith. A man cannot be justified by the deeds of the law, Paul said. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. In another place he said that faith, excuse me, that the law cannot justify any man. For by the deeds of the law is the knowledge of sin. No flesh can be justified by the law on the sight of God. The law reveals our sinful hearts to us. But the law can never justify. It can only condemn. But Christ alone can justify. And it is not by keeping the law. It is by faith. Now I understand that every man who has true faith has repentant faith. Every man who has true faith desires to turn away from his sin. But it is faith that lays hold of Jesus. Faith is simply reliance upon the work of Christ. Can you imagine how this broke in through the hearts of the Reformers? By faith only? But what of all? What of all we've done? What of all the the sacraments and and all of the veneration of relics and all of the torture of, of Luther as he even brought himself to the point of death, trying to purge himself from sin and earn some kind of merit with God? It was merely by resting on the finished work of Christ? It was by simply laying our head on the bosom of Jesus? It is just by being done with my works and resting in Jesus? Trusting in Christ alone? Resting, resting in His finished work? That is how a man receives justification. The Bible says it. Romans 4 verse 5 
But to him that worketh not, but believeth. To him that worketh not, but believeth. How much clearer can it be? To him that worketh not, but believeth. On him that justifieth the ungodly. His faith is counted for righteousness. Because he lays hold of Christ, his faith brings him into a state of righteousness. And what then, according to the text, is the result of justification? We have peace with God. We have peace with God. One commentator wrote, The justified person is no longer tormented by the questions of his relationship with God, arising from the fact that he is a sinner. Sinner though he is, he is at peace with God because of what God has done for him. Brothers and sisters, this is a fact. It doesn't matter how you feel about your justification. It doesn't matter if you feel justified. If you are resting in Christ, you are justified. We have, as a present possession, peace with God. If Christ has died for your soul, you have peace with God. You can be sure of that fact. We have peace with God. Now, I want to say a word about some kind of a morbid introspection that even is in some of the reform camps we need to be careful about. We understand that the book of 1 John gives evidences. Evidences, birthmarks. Am I truly saved? Well, do I, do I love the law? Do I love the people of God? Those, that's true. There are evidences of salvation. But the reformers and the Puritans who followed them, although some of the Puritans, some of them, went too far in this introspection, you can see in some of their books, such as the Almost Christian. The Reformers and the Puritans understood that when a man believes, there is a degree, the seed of assurance in that faith. Assurance grows as you see evidences in your life. It grows. And yes, a man who has no fruit has no right to have any assurance. But we do not wait until our dying hour and see if we have persevered before we say we know that Christ is ours. The, the number one grounds of assurance, according to the Reformers and the Puritans, is the, are the promises of God. Is the fact that God has said in His Word, much more than being now justified by His blood, we shall be saved from wrath through Him. The promises of God. That God has said, Verily, verily, he that believeth on me hath everlasting life. And yes, our assurance is a living thing and it grows. But we ought to be assured. We ought to know. I'm always struck with the Apostle Paul in Romans 6 talking about fighting sin, and he says, Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then he says, Don't let sin reign in your mortal body. If you cannot reckon yourself to be dead unto sin, if you do not have assurance of your soul's standing before God, 
How can you fight sin according to Paul in Romans 6? If you constantly have to be introspective, constantly pulling apart every one of your motives and every little bit of your sinful heart, that is not the primary ground of assurance. Take ten looks at Christ for every one look at yourself. Yes, examine yourself, but be very careful that you do it with with eyes full of the work of Christ. Christ is the grounds of our assurance. And assurance is something that the child of God should have. According to Romans 6, I don't see how someone who doesn't have assurance, according to this text, a measure of assurance, will be able to effectively fight sin. How can you know when you fight sin that the power of God is in your soul to help you fight that sin if you don't know you're born again? Where is your strength to fight temptation? Where is it? When the child of God is is in turmoil, not knowing whether they're safe, having no degree of assurance at all. And I know that there are times when we feel that way. But don't we know that we feel so weak? Can't we all say we feel weak? There are times when the Lord may allow us to go into a point where we lack assurance for a time, when we struggle But this is not to be the pattern of life for a believer. How can believers come and take the Lord's table? Do you think that in the early church, when Paul in 1 Corinthians administered the Lord's table, that half of the church wouldn't come or more because they didn't know if they were saved? I don't believe so. But Paul says if you're going to come, only a believer can come. Are we to think that Paul had some superhuman understanding of his own relationship with God when in Romans 8 he proclaimed that nothing could separate him from the love of Christ? We've been looking at Philippians. How much of his joy is based on the unchanging fact that he is Christ's? And you see, this filled the heart of the reformers with an unshakable joy and indomitable courage in the face of any opposition. Can you imagine? People in the Reformation days were told, you can't know that God loves you for certain. You can't know you're right with God. And the Reformers found, I can know. I'm reading in the Word. Jesus has, He's borne my sin. He's forgiven all my trespasses. I'm made righteous in Him. Paul has assurance of his standing before God. I'm right with God. I have peace with God. I've been justified by His blood. I'm not an enemy anymore. I'm reconciled to God by the death of His Son. And they would say, now we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And it filled their hearts with a holy zeal and joy and boldness that they preached this gospel until they died. And it didn't matter what they suffered. It didn't matter the tortures that may face them. They preached until they couldn't preach anymore. And it's when the people of God are gripped by this truth that we will be set on fire for God. The reformers had a great vision. We want to spread the gospel, this gospel of free and sovereign grace all over, not only for Calvin, France, or for Luther, Germany, or for Zwingli, Switzerland, or for the English reformers, England, but all over the nations. 
that the nations might be freed from the shackles of their guilt, that people might be able to know that they are dearly loved and treasured by God and that souls that are condemned under the wrath of God might be saved. And brothers and sisters, it's no different today. There are people all around here in this city that are under the guilt and condemnation of the law of God. And they need the truth of the Reformation. The truths of the Reformers that said that God justifies the ungodly through the Lord Jesus by faith and by grace alone. This has got to become a reality for the people of God. This perhaps is the primary joy, the primary heartbeat, I should say, of the Reformation, the gospel of justification. So may the Lord bless us to our souls. May we know something of the unshakable joy of peace with God as we go from this place. Let us rejoice. Let us joy in our God. No matter what we're facing in life, you're right with God. Your sins are forgiven. We're going to heaven. I mean, this life is a blink. It's a vapor. We are going to heaven. We're going to an eternity with God. We'll be there through the endless ages. We're dearly loved by God. We're viewed as being perfectly righteous. I mean, how much more, how much more joy can we have? I mean, let us rejoice in that. Praise God for His mercy and His grace. Our Father in heaven, we thank Thee this evening. Lord, it's hard to believe, we confess. But Lord, it's true. Jesus hath died for us. And He has risen. And He will take us home to glory. Oh Lord, thank You. We don't deserve it. We're so undeserving. Oh Lord, thrill our hearts with the gospel. Burn our hearts up, Lord, with a zeal for this gospel. Like these men in the days of the Reformation. Bless all of thy people tonight, Lord. May they, may they know the joy of the Lord as they go home. May they know the joy of God in their souls. Bless them for Jesus' sake.